Hi, this is Jesse Cook, and you're listening to Talkin' Blues. I wanted to start off by saying this summer I was working on this video project, which consisted of like ridiculous amount of um, cell phone videos, and I was having some problems with it. And then Eric Alper sent me um, a video that you had done. Ah, oh, yeah. And on uh, that video, you had used tons of different yeah. iPhone footage. Yeah, yeah. And I, I said to Eric, I said, can you find out who did that, who edited that? Because I'm having some issues, and I need yeah. to figure out how one does that. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. he wrote back to me and told me it was you. Yeah, no, I, it's it's funny. People are always, you know, it's it's kind of flattering. But we'll get like emails from people going, you know, or, or messages from people saying, you know, congratulations to Jesse's team on that video. And I'm going, what team? You know, it's just, <laughs> it's really just me. Occasionally, I will, uh, you know, I'll work with a camera person. Um, like for example, the the roadie on in on my crew when we're touring is, uh, you know, as a photographer, sort of. A, a, another career he he was a photographer so i you know at a certain point i started handing cameras to him and saying hey can you you know uh, film us during this song during the show or whatever but most of the time i do everything myself i film right. it i you know i uh i edit it i mix it i color grade it and i actually the you know it's one of those things where you know i love it like i come from a family of filmmakers my my father was a director a feature film director in europe my mother uh, was a television director and producer for the for the cbc for the nature of things yeah uh so i grew up with like you know everybody we knew was were filmmakers uh, it, and I was like the musician. I didn't, you know, I never got remotely near any of that stuff because, you know, there was just way too much sort of competition. So, uh, and then, you know, and then my father, you know, passed on and my mother retired and suddenly, you know, I, I, there was this big vacuum and all the only people I knew were musicians and there was no competition. And I thought, well, you know, if I pick up a camera, no one's going to judge me. And, uh, and next thing you know, like I've, you know, I've, I've made, I don't know how many music videos at this point I, I directed and uh, edited and you know mixed and everything my last PBS special uh, like I it's become this thing that I, I just love to do and it takes way too much time away from music but <laughs> I you know <laughs> I, I just can't stop myself I you know it's like a, I you know I've created a monster because um, I, I was gonna ask you if, if if your parents had something to do with you getting into doing video but obviously oh, in a way, they had something to do with you not getting into video. <laughs> well, it's a bit of both, probably, because I knew the language. It was the weirdest thing. Like, you know, I, I think I directed my or I made my first music video. Oh, my God. I'm going to I'd have to actually go on YouTube and see when I posted it. But not that long ago. It might have been nine years ago or something. It was I think it was Virtue was my first music video. Uh, before that, I made a home movie with my kids. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> That's the arc of my career. But I remember, you know, when I first made that 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 first video, I, I remember thinking, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. And, and I'm going along and I'm, you know, sort of working in, I can't remember if I was using Final Cut Pro at that point or if I was still using iMovie, you know, that comes right, free yeah, with your yeah. Mac. Uh, but I remember thinking, or quickly realizing that, in fact, I I did know the language of film. In fact, we, we all probably know the language of film because we 
see so much TV and movies our whole lives. That For sure. We, yeah, you start going, oh yeah, I know what a J-cut is, and uh, you know, I know what I should be doing at this point, I should be cutting to see what that guy's looking at, you know, like whatever, you set your, your I need an establishing shot, or like all these things, you realize they're, they're kind of kind of baked into us, because we we consume so much of uh, video, and, and, and as a musician, to discover this kind of creative outlet outlet excuse me uh at this point in my life like you know i'm 55 now so somewhere in my mid-40s i started doing this and i i never thought there would be another art form that i could embrace and do at any level where i'd be okay showing it to the world um (laughs) but you know and and also the other thing is I, i sort of feel like when i first started there wasn't uh, you know all these people doing vlogging everywhere where now everybody is making an insane amount of content that's at a pretty high level mm-hmm. back then I, I just felt like an imposter you know I sort of felt like oh my god you know there were people filming on their cell phones and then there was professionals and there wasn't a lot in between whereas you know now I sort of feel like it's wide open you can do whatever you want the, there, there's you know that that sort of fear is gone everybody's working in the in the uh, in the genre in the um in the medium did you did you have much access to your parents working uh, or seeing their work uh well i <laughs> my dad was a big talker so i heard a lot about his work uh my mother was more hands-on you know i would i uh i had to travel across the city to go to school like i went to a school up at bathurst and highway seven and we lived in the beaches so i would sort of be on the subway two hours a day each direction and and often on my way home rather than go all the way back to the beaches I would just you know get off the subway downtown and go to the CBC and sort of sit in the back of the room until she was done and then get a, a lift home with her she'd drive me home um, and so I would be sitting in the back of an editing suite you know and watching my mom and the editor working on a steam back and you know back then it was all film and yeah. splicing and that kind of thing and or massive bins of you know clips that they would be holding on to in case they needed them later and uh, you know it was kind of it's fascinating too because like I think towards the end of my father's career he he wanted to start making his own films. He up till then he'd done it that way too, you know, with a team and edit proper editing and film and everything. And I think a little too early before the technology was really ready for it, he was starting to try and make films on video back when it was beta SP and, you know, they sort of tape based yeah, yeah. standards that still didn't look good. You know, they still didn't look anything as good as film. Um, but, the, you know, he tried and bought all sorts of equipment and was, you know, kind of tr- slaving away in his home trying to make something that looked half decent. I sort of feel like, you know, oh, another 20 years later, if he just lived a little longer, he would have he would have been able to, you know, make films to his heart's content forever. <laughs> So at what point did it become comfortable for you to be doing the film work where you didn't feel like an imposter? Oh, well, there's probably moments even still where I feel like an imposter. But I I think, as I said, because so many people are playing with the medium and experimenting, not just this medium, I sort of feel like you know, we live in an age with because probably because of social media where everybody's producing all sorts of content constantly mm-hmm. and posting it. Uh, whereas, you know, I, I, I have a perfectionist tendency and, you know, I'll work on a record till long after I should have released it. <laughs> you know, it's a, what did Picasso say? He said, uh, no work is ever complete. Uh, it's just abandoned, you know, and I, that's how, <laughs> that's how I feel. You don't have to kind of 
pull it from my my sort of cold dead hands right like <laughs> clutch clutching the master don't take it away uh and so you know this kind of laissez-faire like accept that it's not going to be perfect thing comes hard it's hard for me it's a difficult thing to accept but you know seeing how how kind of liberal and open people are with sharing you know whatever they create uh it, it certainly makes it easier for somebody like me to go okay you know let's just i'm not i'm not a, a professional filmmaker but i'm going to do this anyway and and i hope people like it and that's all you can ask for but but if you're doing your own concert specials and editing that i mean mm-hmm. in, in essence you are a professional filmmaker <laughs> um, well you know, when you put it that way yeah and this, we don't, sorry go ahead, so go ahead does that change the way you approach your music in any way i mean has it ever gotten to a point where i know you were a musician player first but because of your knowledge of video and maybe knowing that you might have concert projects or video projects in the works, does that change any way that you approach your music? I think it does to a small degree. I, 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 what, what I noticed when I started doing film was that it's all related. And it's interesting that you said I'm a musician player first, but in fact, I think of myself as a composer, producer first, and a player second. Like I, I think most people when they see me, they they see the guitar and they go, "Oh, he's the guitarist in this music we're listening to." But in fact, you know, the recordings are me. I do all the parts. I play everything, right. and then at the end, I go, "Okay, what what in this recording?" am I not happy with and then I call up my friends and you know other musicians who are sort of really play those instruments and say hey can you come and replace this and do a better job than I did and and that's if you listen to my records that you know if you hear the demos before they're finished you'll just notice that yeah suddenly a couple of instruments that sound a bit cheesy or synthy or drum machine or whatever are replaced with real instruments and otherwise that's it it's the what you hear is is this thing that i've spent way too much time sort of sitting in my studio <laughs> you know staring at my navel and <laughs> um uh but so um but i find that when i started doing video there were so many commonalities like you know when you're editing you know, it's not like I'd never edited before. I'd been editing music my whole life, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, or or working on pacing, you know, or sort of, you know, having moments where everything's quiet and you have, you know, one instrument that holds your attention for a long time and then, boom, you, you things accelerate and a whole lot of other instruments sort of come in and start sort of jumping around and your attention is flying. And it's very much like editing. You have moments where you want the scene to come, become completely still and you want to draw the person into that scene and then other moments where you want to be cutting around and getting things really exciting and uh, and all of that stuff it's it, it's very related and I often will I'll see some people editing music where I realize they're not actually connecting to the music as much as I would like them to you know that they may be a great editor but if they're not you know if they're editing to music they I don't I don't see the music in their edit I don't the 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 video the way it's edited doesn't have the rhythm of the music and and um and I sort of feel like the the one advantage that I have that you know the, despite the fact that I don't never went to film school and I, I don't have any formal training in this but the one advantage I have when you're making a music video or a television special or whatever is that I really do understand the music you know like the music part of it mm-hmm. I get you know so I you know people will cut to the wrong instrument there'll be a fill and like you know the editor will cut to some other instrument I'm going no no we should cut to the drummer he's <laughs> he's got the fill you know whatever I, and I, I sort of feel like that's the 
you know, the, the, that is sort of the, that's why, that's why also I stick to this medium. I, you won't find me making a feature film anytime soon <laughs> or a drama or, you know, a cop, <laughs> there's nothing, it's not, it's not on my horizon. I just stick with music. But, but your video has been a big part of what you've done. Like over the years, you've done a lot of videos and concert films. It ha- yeah, lately. Uh, it's funny. I mean, it it really is all in the last, I don't know, 10 years, and it's accelerated. Like, uh, you know, as YouTube and Instagram and all of that has become a sort of better and better way for musicians to get, you know, their work out to the public, um, and, and there's been more and more attention. You know, there's a, our YouTube subscribers keep growing, and you when you start having an audience, you feel like, oh, I want to I wanna make something for them, you know, and so it it's become a thing where instead of it just being a weird little hobby of mine, it became something. Oh, well, this is important. I need to make another video. And in fact, I you know, right now I'm I've been in the studio making my new record, and I haven't made a video in the last two months, and I'm feeling guilty about it. I feel like you know, oh man, got to get the cameras out. You know what I mean? Got to get get the slider going and get drone footage, and off we go. Oh, that's interesting. Um, if we Go back. Let's go back to mm-hmm. the beginning. And I know that you've probably told the story many times before, but how did the guitar come into your life? Um, that's, you know, that's one of those questions where I don't personally have the answer to it. I, I have to rely on my mother's telling of the story, right? Where we, uh, I was born in France and um, when we, when I was two, we moved to Barcelona for about six months. My mom got a job in Barcelona and, um, we had a little apartment there and she said I used to wander around the apartment with little toy Spanish guitars, strumming and singing Guantanamera. And, um, and, uh, you know, and, and she said I was just always fascinated with this instrument and, and then we moved back to France and then, uh, when I was four, we moved to Canada and, um, after that, I just had these records, these kind of flamenco records that my mom had brought back. And, you know, it's even kind of, they're not even really kind of fl- what, what what I now know is flamenco puro. They're, they're, these are these sort of Camargue flamenco records. This artist named Manitas de Platas, who's a kind of, in Spain, he's very controversial. People are like, oh, that's not real flamenco. That's that French stuff, you know. But he, you know, as a four-year-old, I didn't know or care about any of that. And I, I loved his records and I used to play them. And, you know, tried to emulate that sound. Uh, and then I, when I was six, my mom finally found a, a guitar teacher who wanted to take on a young student. Um, and my, f- I think one of my first teachers was a flamenco teacher. So it was like this weird kind of global conspiracy to make this little six-year-old play flamenco in Canada, right, where everybody else was listening to the Beatles or something. So, uh, And then, uh, you know, as I got older, it just kept circling around. You know, my father, who had uh, been a fashion photographer for Paris, and then he'd gone off to Austria, and he had a film career there, and then he retired to Arles in the south of France, which is, you know, a pretty small town. It's like 40,000 people or something, and it's famous for just a few things. One is uh, Van Gogh lived there and made all those famous paintings there, and the other is that the Gypsy Kings came from there, and in fact... Nicholas Reyes, the lead singer of the Gypsy Kings, who, who were not a famous band at the time, happened to be my neighbor, my dad's neighbor, like right next door. So as a kid, as a teenager visiting my dad, I'm living in the Gypsy Quarter of this town in the south of France, and and all these kids are hanging out on the street playing guitar in this kind of really sort of rhythmic flamenco way, and and I just got hooked again over and over throughout my life to the point where you know here I am today, and this is this is what I do. 
that's that, that's fascinating. But but that wasn't the only thing you played, though, right? Because I think were you not in a rock band or other bands before? Oh yeah, yeah. I uh, you know I I I I love the Beatles. I still do. I loved uh, you know I grew up on the the pop music of our time, right? I loved the Police as a teenager. I played in a number of bands uh, as a teenager. But by the time, you know, after I went to music school, I went to the conservatory and then I went to York and then I went to Berkeley. And by the time I was done with all that, I didn't ever, you know, I would play, occasionally I would get hired to do recording sessions as a, an electric guitar player, but I just didn't play it anymore. I just, the only guitar that I played anymore was a flamenco guitar. And, uh, but to be fair, I, in my twenties, I wasn't making a living as a flamenco guitarist either. I was a composer. I, I was making music for you know, television and theater and dance companies and whoever would hire me. Um, and the flamenco thing was just a thing I did on the side for myself that somehow towards the end of my 20s uh, took over and, and kind of took me on this crazy uh, journey, right, where suddenly I'm traveling around the world playing concerts and things <laughs> like that, which I did not see coming. I thought I was, I just thought I was going to be a studio rat my whole life. I didn't ever expect I'd be in front of an audience. Really? So it was kind of, yeah, it was strange. Um, okay, so when you went to school, was that the intent that you would go to the Royal Conservatory, you would go to Berkeley, thinking that you would be a studio musician? Was that the goal, or I don't know. It's that's a, actually that's a very interesting question. No one's ever asked me that before, but it it uh, it wasn't the goal. I think when I by the time I was out the other side, I had kind of sort of uh, lowered my expectations I just realized you know it's unrealistic to think that you're going to be a concert musician you know what I mean that everybody wants to be a concert musician and you're you know sorry the con- best concert I- in, in means of classical music or flamenco no or rock? anything oh. anything just that you would be able to be on a stage and play whatever you want you know as opposed to being a sideman or right. a producer or somebody who's more behind the scenes in the music industry. I sort of thought if you're behind the scenes, you can have a lifelong career in the music industry. If you, if you're making music for the public, then the public may love you today. And then three years later, they forget you. And now you're driving a cab, (laughs) you know, and I sort of thought, I I don't want to do that. I I was, I want to be able to make music my whole life. And so I just kind of made this decision that I was going to be a kind of behind the scenes guy. And, and I was, you know, I actually was it was getting to the point where I was doing well and able to turn down work, you know, as a composer. I was getting more work than I needed by the end of my 20s. I mean, in the, at the beginning, it was tough. I was eating Kraft macaroni and cheese and worrying about, you know, whether I could pay my bell bill. Like, it was it was in the early 20s, it was totally difficult. But as things went along, I, I started to sort of, you know, have people, clients who would come regularly for, you know, and ask me to do stuff. Um, and and in fact, I, I was very loath to mess it up by going out and doing this flamenco thing, but I had a friend, I had a number of people actually kind of telling me, listen, you should make a record of your guitar playing because it's really the best thing you do. And I said, no, I don't want it. You know, <laughs> that's a terrible idea. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I'll, because you thought you were a composer first and uh, player no, second. I, I think it was that I, yeah, I just felt like it was going to be too hard and nobody would want to hear my guitar playing. You know what I mean? Like all those years as a student at Berkeley and I was practicing 10 hours a day and I, yeah, I wanted to be on that concert stage. But by the end, I was, at the end of my education, I was 
convinced that, you know, I, I must be crazy to think this is really going to happen. And so I just kind of thought, okay, let's be realistic. What can I do? And, and so I started producing other people's records and making scores for productions in Toronto and whatever. And, and, uh, but it, what the weirdest thing was when I finally made that first record, which was Tempest, um, it came out and it it just took off like it it took on a life of its own and my you know it was one of those things where it was the easiest thing I ever did was uh, in fact it was hard the only difficulty was trying to keep up with the amount of attention that that record got compared to you know the previous 10 years of my life where I was networking and constantly working to try and get people to know you know hey I can make music for you and suddenly it it was you know I was just trying to learn how to give concerts and get up at four in the morning so you can do press and in-store performances and all this stuff and then go and do a concert all on the same day and then start again the next day like it was it was overwhelming at first when it when when the record first launched I I was completely caught unprepared and, and in fact I still had composing clients and projects that needed to be finished and I I was kind of in this position where I I didn't know if I should you know give up that work or if 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 this flamenco thing was just going to be a sort of flash in the pan and I you know it was really it was a difficult dis- point in my life where I remember one point I, I had to do a concert I was in Quebec City and I was waiting to go on and my cell phone rings and it's like this I was doing this big this big uh, project for IBM uh, and they needed a whole bunch of music and they're like yeah we want some edits to some of the cues you send us and I was like oh um, I'm, <laughs> I'm they're like we need this by this afternoon can you do that you know and I was like uh, no <laughs> I can't and, I, and that was a, the point where I realized I can't actually do both I have to choose and I, I chose this and I'm really glad I did it's uh, you know it could be because I think before the music I did was always music to support somebody else's vision do you know what i mean whether it was their their dance vision or their tv show or whatever the ibm whatever it was was um but once i started doing this it just became about chasing my own muse and and my own heart and saying okay what what do i want to say emotionally with music and 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 it's you know the the only issue the only concern becomes you know your own emotional honesty with your work instead of just trying to second guess you know or read like what what the client wants <laughs> which is yeah, yeah. way harder you know it's it's much easier to say yes this feels good i'm gonna go with it you know as opposed to going i think they like it i don't know um if we go back um a number of questions that it conjures up into my mind but one is where did that composition um the ability to compose come from it, it was actually um, always there. Like, I think, you know, I. it's funny. I, I still remember some of the songs I wrote when I was six and seven. And I, I'll sing them to my family. They think it's hilarious. <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, <laughs> um, and I think when I was in my teens, uh, at a certain point, I built a little recording studio in my mother's basement using, like, Radio Shack mixers and wires spliced together and, you know, two tape decks side by side and we just go back and forth between these two you know beat up old tape decks that my friends and I managed to cobble together and so you know I I was composing producing stuff you know all through my teens and by the time I got to Berkeley you know that was it was it was a there was a lot of competition for my time because I wanted to work on recording music but at the same time 
I wanted to practice the guitar and get better at the guitar, and I that was always a dilemma. There wasn't really much time for much else in those years in in, uh, in college. So in Berkeley, you were playing only electric guitar, correct? Like you weren't playing a flamenco or classical guitar. Yeah, that's interesting. They uh, they wouldn't let me do classes with a uh, flamenco guitar or classical guitar. They we had to do classes on electric. Uh, so I had a Les Paul that um, I I was playing at that time. Um, and but I I certainly at home I had a, a flamenco that I would play but yeah it for those years there was a lot less flamenco going on um, it you know and especially and true flamenco like the flamenco puro and stuff I I really had to kind of do on my own after I graduated I you know I I had always had an interest in it and I'd always played a certain amount but you know after I graduated I'd started making trips to to Spain. Um, and trying to, you know, sort of learn about about real flamenco and where, you know, where it comes from and what 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 the real art form is, and and that was a whole other interesting lesson, right? Because Berkeley is this place where you're learning all about music theory and reading notes and different styles, and you go to Spain and it's about you know learning by meeting people and hanging out and picking it up, you know, kind of knee to knee, you play something and they play something and you learn from each other and that kind of thing. So it was a, it was a totally, you know, one is a completely oral tradition and the other yeah. one's more of a written, written tradition. And, and it was for me as a sort of quote unquote schooled musician, it was eye opening to realize how good you have to be to, to learn by ear only, <laughs> you know what I mean? That <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a whole other skill and it's great. It's a great skill. So, but in was, at Berkeley, did you like, was it more jazz? Was it more classical music or was it composition? What was, th- what was the, what were you going after? Um, well, I was just trying to learn about music, the whole thing, music theory and, um, you know, music production and and I you know definitely Berkeley has a a kind of core focus of jazz but they also teach pop music and they teach different styles of arranging and I think even now Berkeley has a flamenco course now you you know uh, I think Javier Limon from Spain is a great producer worked with Paco Lucia and various other mm. people Monty Cortez he he I think he's moved to Boston he's teaching there so it's it, you know it, the school has changed since I was there but uh, at the time it was definitely much more western music only uh, but the you know the, at the end of the day music is music and and um Certainly, as a producer and as a composer, all of the, you know those arranging courses that I took, the you know the theory and harmony, all that stuff is is what you need to learn to to kind of work. And even to this day, you know, if I'm producing a record, as I said, the guitar part takes about five minutes. <laughs> the rest of the song can take a month. You know, what I mean, depends how r- ridiculous I get about it. But you know, it'll it could take weeks at least. You know, to, to get it all together. So. so when you realized, and I don't know what made you realize that going after being a concert performer was not to be, was that devastating? How did that happen? How did you come to the conclusion that that might not be a reality? Honestly, I don't think I ever really gave it a lot of thought. I didn't kind of have a clear dream and then clearly abandon it. I just kind of morphed towards like, you know, working, practicing, 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 and then getting out in the real world and going, how to, got to pay my bill, what can I do? (laughs) Oh, I'll do this, you know. Somebody needs a record and, you know, hey, can I produce it? Sure, I can do that. I was just happy to be making music. I mean, I think any musician, any artist realizes, you know, when they, that 
it, it's not going to be easy. You know, that you're, most of the time you're happy just to be able to do your art and not have to drive a cab to support it. So in, in, in my case, you know, just the very fact that I could be a musician was kind of a, its own reward. And then, you know, when my career took off as a, as a concert guitarist, that was, that was like winning the lottery. I, I not, you know, I did not imagine that that would ever happen. Okay. So how does that happen? Obviously you, you go into the studio, record this album and it gets well received and you're surprised by it. But also now you have to deal with everything you had talked about, publicity and, and getting up doing interviews and doing concerts all over the world, whatever. H- how did all that come about? Was it just a good record label? Was it good management? Uh, I think it was, a, a lot of it, honestly, was timing. I was just really lucky that I, all these things that I had been interested in and that the world was not very interested in. You know what I mean? <laughs> Flam- flamenco music was really off most people's radar um you know Paco de Lucia yes there were those of us who thought Paco de Lucia was the god but uh most people didn't even know who he was and 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 then just as I was kind of coming uh, to be an adult and being a developed musician the gypsy kings kind of start peaking and and the world is kind of swept with interest in this form of music in this form of guitar and you know i was i had been making that music for years making recordings of it for years it's just it never occurred to me to try and release any of them to, to the public um and so uh i kept it's actually the story is weird it's i i had a friend who was in a west african drumming ensemble with a, a ghanaian master drummer named joseph shong and joseph joseph taught us all these beautiful West African rhythms and uh, we were doing gigs in Toronto and, and um, everywhere we would play we, we would play a gig and we'd get offered two more people would see it love it and offer us two more and I remember thinking this is a crazy ratio you know you, you, you just can't you can't miss right you, you play one you get two you know, two more jobs so uh, but I also remember thinking I, as much as I love it this isn't really me um you know, and what I think would be even more sort of a, a sort of something that would really be what I love to do is is a rumba band, uh, and I so I decided I was going to form a rumba band, and then I was uh, a fr- another friend of mine, an Argentinian singer, asked me to come with him and accompany him at some Latin music competition. So I did. I accompanied him on the guitar, and we lost. And the band that won the competition was a Gypsy Kings cover band, a rumba band, basically, and. And I don't know why or how I had the moxie to do it, but I remember I crossed the floor. I went across to these guys who had just won, <laughs> and I, I, the losing guy, walked across and said, you guys are great. You you know, you, you really need a lead guitarist. And I, I, in hindsight, I didn't even realize it, but I was saying it to their lead guitarist. <laughs> but somehow he was kind of uh, a sort of um, open enough about what was going on to sort of say, you know, you're right, Um you know, I guess he didn't really, he'd never really studied flamenco. He was just kind of doing what he could. Uh, and he said, you're right. And I, they, they asked me to join the band and I played with them for about a year. And then we got interest from record labels as a group. We got interest. People were saying, you know, we'd like to sign you. And I was like, yeah, but we can't be signed playing Gypsy Kings covers. We need some originals. And sadly, that band, uh, as bands often do, 
the lead singer and the guy who had written some great songs kind of went off on a bender or something and just disappeared for two months. <laughs> and was <laughs> That's a hell of a bender. <laughs> well, yeah, I, we do, I don't really know. None of us really know what happened, but I, I, we were supposed to be recording, and I was sitting at my studio waiting for him to show up. And, um, and I thought, well, I got the day booked off. I'll, I'll record something of my own. And I wrote Tempest, and then I wrote a few more songs. And then um, I submitted my tape because there was no other, there's nothing else to do. I submitted my tape to Sony Music um, and Sony said, thanks, but no thanks. And, uh, and, but by then I had three songs and had started and I thought, well, I'll just keep chipping away. And I wrote the rest of the album. And by the time the album was about to come out, uh, I had a great, uh, uh, this woman named Kathleen Shea, who was uh, very sort of, just a very talented and ambitious uh, uh, manager. And she kind of said, listen, we don't want to sign in Canada. Whatever we do, we want to sign in the U.S. Um, and I was like, okay, sounds good. <laughs> you know? And again, I, I keep in mind, I'm a person who's always going, this isn't going to work. You know, in the back of my head, I'm just going, yeah, that's never going to happen, right? There, no one is going to care. So sure, let's, let's send it around to companies in the U.S. And, and uh, we, got, um, we got like four record companies in the U.S. Call, calling us up saying, yeah, we're, let's talk. We're interested. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I released the album independently. This is all happening kind of simultaneously. I released the album independently, and I man- I remember going to one of those places that will manufacture 500 CDs, and they say, you know, for pennies more, you could have 1,000. <laughs> 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 and I'm going, oh, my God, we'll never get rid of 1,000, right? And anyway, the 1,000 flew out the door in the first week, uh, and the wow. distributor wanted, they wanted more. They're like, can you do more? And I was like, I actually don't have any more money to make any CDs because I'm, you know, yeah. I'm a musician, right? <laughs> so they fronted me the money to make 2,000 more, which also sold out immediately. Same time, these record labels are calling us up, and the one label sent us plane tickets and said, fly down and meet us. We want to sign you. And they, the president of the company picked me up at the airport and drove me to the, stu- to the, uh, the record company and kind of took me on this grand tour and introduced me to everybody. And, and by the end of that day, you know, it was just this kind of thing where it was like, oh, my God, the level of kind of uh, interest and support that we're going to get from this record company is is amazing so we signed with them and uh there's you know there's more crazy stories about weird serendipity but long story short the album came out debuted at number 14 on the billboard charts and my life changed overnight wow so when something like that happens and it's wonderful but is there also a part especially when you say that's never going to happen i mean when it does actually happen how do you react to that do you think oh my god what do i have to do now or <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. It, I mean, I, I I think because I was I think because I was young and I was resilient, I kind of you know I was able to just go with it and and react and you know kind of rise to the occasion. But I, it's funny because I think there was a sort of split in my personality at the time. Like I remember, you know, we uh, the first thing we did is we went down to the Catalina Jazz Festival and we're you know I became like the the overnight 
hit of the of the festival we it was weird it was like being the beatles and the band and i were trying to get around on the island after playing and people were chasing us down the street <laughs> it, it was like the weirdest thing but just wow. on this island just on this and catalina island is just off the coast of los angeles right it's if you have catalina on your mac os that island that's that's where this festival happens you know that picture that yeah, yeah, yeah. You, your screensaver right so yeah. so it's funny every time i see that island i sort of go yes without the without the catalina jazz festival i could not afford this mac that is showing me this picture <laughs> so, <laughs> that's the serendipity part so anyway uh so yeah on the one hand it was great it was things were exciting and things were working on the other hand my health like i just i remember i got a cold at one point that lasted for three months straight i just you know i i i was so at some level i was kind of incredibly nervous I wasn't used to being on stage. I was, you know, trying to kind of suppress all those feelings and not think about them. But I, you know, I it was just this kind of split personality where there's the me on stage that was acting very confident and everything's fine. And then there's the me that whose health is deteriorating and I'm trying to kind of cope with suddenly being thrust into the limelight and not, you know, I, I'm a, an introvert to begin with. So it was weird. It was a weird time. And, you know, it took me years to kind of get comfortable with what I, you know, what I now realize is actually kind of a moderate level of fame. It's, you know, my whole career is like a really bad day for Christina Aguilera. Well, when you sell millions of copies of an album, I just think... I think she sells those every day. You know what I mean? Every day she wakes up, two million gone out the door. So. Okay, so going back, when, when you started composing initially and you were living on craft dinner and wondering mm-hmm. if you could make ends meet um what did you learn from that to all of a sudden becoming this overnight sensation and i don't know if all of a sudden money started pouring in but obviously you had followers and adulation and whatever yeah. when you look at those two situations in your life what did you learn from that oh my god um i you know what i i don't there's so many things to say I could learn from it. Uh, some of them are hard lessons, you know. Um, it's not all great. I think it's funny because you you see that all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Child stars who kind of have, are given everything. The world is sort of handed to them on a silver platter. And, and you know, by 22, they're in rehab and, you yeah. know, their lives are falling apart. And, and, you know, you look at sort of Jim Carrey, right, who's one of the most famous, at one point, the highest paid actor in the world. And... He he has sounds like he's always really struggled with being famous, um, and and at first when you know this all happened to me, the first five years were kind of the the, the last five years of the first five years of my career were the last five years of the music industry as I, as I knew it then, right where right. you know it, before Napster showed up and suddenly everybody was downloading, but you know um, so yeah in terms of record royalties. Uh, you know, I did well. It's it's nothing like what I think people imagine I did. It was, but it was enough that you know I could, I could buy you know a house, which right. was which and and uh, uh, that was great, right? Like for a musician to be able to own a house is is a big deal. Um, so uh, you know, the for really for me the best thing that all of this did was it enabled me to do whatever music I wanted to do and and sort of chase my muse as a career and I you know I'm I'm not having to constantly 
struggle. And I, I, it's one of those things where I, I, you know, I can't overstate this. You know, the life of an artist is tough. It's, right. it's funny because my, my own kids, uh, both, you know, my, my daughter's interested in, in acting and dancing. And my son at one point was very interested in, in music. And now he's more interested in graphics. And it's one of those things where it's hard. I, most musician parents I know, most artist parents, when their kids say, oh, I want to be a musician or an artist, they'll, they'll try and dissuade them. You know, this is not good news because they're like, oh, God, you know, then you're going to have as tough a time as I did. And, and in my case, I can't say that. You know, yeah, it was, ten, it was tough during my 20s, but since then, it hasn't been. And I always feel very, very lucky that that I've been I've kind of got out of that I haven't you know it's I it's not it hasn't been the kind of crazy s- sort of uh, wealth and success that I think some people imagine but it you know it for me ju- it's it's enough that I don't worry about my bills and that's a, that's fantastic uh-huh, for sure um and but having gone through the original time when it was tough to mm-hmm. make mm-hmm. a living and to fear where if you could make the next um, rent payment or whatever. I mean, that must have taught you a few things too, right? Um, y- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe not. That's way. No, it did. It's way too complicated to get into all of that. But it it is. It's it's hard. It's it's your life changes. Your relationships with the people that are close to you change. Right. Um. You know, you people immediately started treating me differently. Um, people I knew started treating me differently. People I would meet would treat me differently and that threw me for a loop it took me a long time to get comfortable with the fact that you know people aren't actually judging you or judging me for necessarily the things I'm saying and doing sometimes they're you know they want to be your friend because they have they think you're famous or they think think thoughts of you based on whatever your marketing materials or they love your records or whatever and it has nothing to do with me per se and and I remember feeling you know people would stop me in the streets and feeling weird about that you know strangers would come up to me and hey can I get your autograph and and the nice thing is uh now as I get older uh you know I've cut my hair and um uh I I sort of have this level of fame where I can actually sort of play the massy halls of you know most cities and and um but people don't recognize me in the street anymore you know it's funny people like I was sitting out in front of my house one day I'm playing guitar (laughs) and a politician is walking up the street and he's going door to door and you know trying to kind of drum up interest in his party or you know him in the next election comes up to me I'm playing guitar and he says oh yeah that's Jesse Cook right and I said yeah (laughs) and he goes oh I love that guy I wonder what he's doing nowadays, <laughs> you know. And I Are go, you serious? Yeah, it's so great. I'm just going. This is fantastic. <laughs> C- cutting my hair was the best decision I ever made. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, it happens quite frequently. It it is the weirdest thing, but it's great. Loving it. Okay, so when you played electric guitar, and I know you you did play in bands and stuff. Did you mm-hmm. ever like? I don't. I I don't have all your records. Or I haven't heard all your records. Yeah. But did you ever record anything with electric? Uh, I think I may have once or twice had like a background part where right. I used electric guitar to create a certain texture. But no, I don't. And it's funny because I think uh, th- over the years, um, uh, friends of mine who are guitarists will, you know, sort of I'll, I'll help them get started. I'll encourage them to, s- to record that first record, you know, and mm-hmm. and, uh, 
and then they'll they'll ask my opinion. They'll like bring it, come record a bunch of stuff, and then they'll come and they'll say, "What what do you think?" And what I find with a lot of guitarists in particular is that they kind of want to show off everything they can do, right? They want to go, "Look, look, I can play electric guitar, and I can play blues, and I can play pedal steel, and here's some flamenco," and and they'll do that. They'll like look at all these things I can do. And I say that's great, you know, if you're doing a demo as a sideman, it's great that you're so versatile, but this is a record. This is an artistic statement, and what is the artistic statement you want to make? And you don't necessarily need to play all these instruments to make that statement. In fact, it may just become this thing where we don't know what we're supposed to feel. It's too all over the map, you know what I mean? And right. I, and I sort of feel as a guitarist the same way, that, you know, just because I can do it doesn't mean I should do it. And, and I, I try to, like, as it is, I already, I try to keep changing what I do and evolving what I do, but I, I'll sometimes, I'll, like right now, I'm in the middle of making a record, and I'll go back and listen to my other records just to make sure that it somehow feels like it's part of the same journey, that I haven't just gone too far off the beaten path, because you know, in, in the old composing days, I would, I could do anything, you know, I'd write, a, at one point, some dance choreographer asked me to do a uh, gamelan interpretation of a Strauss score, you know, and I don't know if you, anybody knows anything about Indonesian gamelan music, but it's all bells and it's not related to our scale system or anything. So, um, you know, trying to create Strauss music with gamelan is pretty tough. Right? So, but, but what I'm saying, my point is, is that it was way off the beaten path of what I normally would do. It, it was, and, and as a composer, that's kind of a fun challenge, right? To kind of go, oh, how am I going to do that, right? Uh, and ju- again, just because you can do it doesn't mean it's the right journey for me as a guitarist, as you know, this, this project, the Jesse Cook guitar project. So I've tried to, you know, I, I try to keep pushing. I don't want to, repl- I don't want to, re- kind of go return to stuff I've already done and regurgitate like record companies love it when you first have a hit they want you to like if if I I had a hit with Tempest and Gravity and um you know that record label would have been so happy if I just made 10 more Tempest and Gravities you know what I mean like like, uh whereas my feeling is I've done that now what's next you know you gotta you gotta grow you gotta change i've always loved artists like miles davis who constantly was looking for something new or the beatles were looking for something new or even madonna you know like people who keep trying to change and find something new i sort of feel like that's your job that as an artist you're trying to kind of redefine yourself constantly do, do you worry like let's say one day you pick up your electric guitar and think oh i'm inspired by this and doing something different mm-hmm. um would you worry about, you know, let's say you, you come up with a concept and you think, I, I really want to play an album of electric guitar. Would you first think about what it does to your audience? Like if that would alienate them? Or how much Does that come into play at all in terms of what your next project will be? Um, well, I think, I, I think yeah, if I, if I totally change tracks, it's kind of like... Uh, when people really, you know, they've always wanted to do something totally different and they do it, it doesn't always work. And I, you know, and I, I feel that way a bit myself. Like, you know, if you look at the beginning, I started with music that was, you know, definitely influenced by the Gypsy Kings and Peter Gabriel and uh, a bit of Paco Lucia and this this trio of uh, Aldemiola, John McLaughlin, Pacalusia. Mm-hmm. So most of my music was, you could feel the influences of those in, in what I was doing. But then as each successive record came out, I just started exploring. Like I, it was that thing where, okay, you know, these are my roots and this is, these are my influences. But 
you know, what do I got? What do I have to say? What can I bring to this? And I just started exploring and, you know, and by the time you get to Vertigo, I'm off in Louisiana working with Buckwheat's Idaho and Nomad. I'm off to Cairo and recording with musicians there. Or I was in uh, uh, working with the Brazilian singer Flora Purim or in Madrid working with Monsip Cortez. And for me, it was like, okay, what what else can we do with this? Um, but I wanted to make sure that the core of it, my voice in it, was recognizably me. I, you know that right. I wanted. I want to be finding something new, but I don't want it to just be a totally different, you know. And now here I am trying to incorporate trap music into what I'm doing. And it's it's hard because at first, as a composer, it's really exciting. All these new sounds and new beats. and um, But then there's there's a point where, you know, after I've been working on a song for a couple of weeks, I actually get bored of the sample. <laughs> I, start, I start going, I kind of want to hear a real person playing because there's more variation, right? right, every right. Time when the drummer plays it, every time he plays, there's just slightly different sounds and different feels and different fills. And, and I'm used to that. So it's hard. Like you, So you end up going, well, I wonder if I'll, maybe I could ask my drummer if he'll if you can play trap music. I've heard him do it. I think he could do it, you know. <laughs> so it's, we'll see. We'll see where this all leads. Okay, so you mentioned Peter Gabriel, and I've seen a few interviews whether you've mentioned Peter Gabriel as, as an influence, as somebody you look up to. Yeah, um, for sure. You you got the chance to work with Tony Levin, who plays in Peter Gabriel's band on yes, one of the yeah. albums. What was that like? It was uh, fantastic. Uh, you know, this was, again, early enough in the days that I... I uh, I think I mentioned earlier my manager uh, at that time, Kathleen Shea, she sort of said, if you could work with anybody in the world, who would it be? So we'd had the success of the first record, Tempest, and she sort of thought, you you know, let's see. Now that your people are talking about you, maybe we could actually call some of these people. And I think she thought my answer to her question would be Peter Gabriel. I'd want to work with Peter. Um, and in fact, it was, no, I want to work with Tony Levin because for <laughs> me that... Peter is doing Peter, right? Yeah, he's, yeah. he's he's the lead in his songs, whereas you know my guitar is the lead in the songs. But that bass playing of Tony Levin's was always a kind of an enigma to me, like you know that weird sound in Sledgehammer. It's like, <laughs> like it's, how does he do it? Like I always thought it was he was playing Chapman's stick with those funk yeah. fingers or whatever, right? Like I didn't know what was going on, but. Um, so we, you know, we called him up and, and he was totally up, up for it. And uh, he lived in just down in, uh, I think, Rochester, New York. Am I? No, not Rochester. It was, uh, oh, anyway, it was upstate New York somewhere. And I, and I drove down and um, sort of hung out with him for the day and recorded with him. And it was really, really kind of amazing. It's, you know, just like, it's that thing where... You, when you spend your life looking at album covers and imagining there's this whole world you're not allowed to, kind of, you know, that they only exist on photos on the back of your records. And then suddenly you're, you get to kind of cross and go into that world and meet them in person and shake hands and hear them playing on your music. It, it, was, it was kind of amazing to me. It was one of the first experiences like that I had. Wow. Um, my friend Mark, who's a guitar player, wanted me to ask you what kind of guitars you play. Because he's oh. telling me basically about how delicate flamenco guitars are. They are. And, and they, they must be difficult to travel with them. And uh, and yeah. also, I know you're very percussive when you play. Yeah, um, I'm a brute. <laughs> so um, I, you mentioned that Grit Laskin has made some of your guitars. But yeah. where, do, where do your guitars come from and how long do they last when you're such a brute? 
So uh, on the first record, I'm embarrassed to say that I couldn't afford a, a great flamenco guitar. I had a Takamine. So when you listen to those first two records, I think you're listening to, you know, a factory-made guitar. Uh, and I think the Takamine might have had a piece of real cedar on top and sort of uh, plywood on the backs. Um, and so, so they, they don't crack. They're really sturdy, and you don't have to worry about any of that. But once I had the success of Tempest and Gravity, one of the first things I did is I hopped on a plane and I went to Madrid and went guitar shopping. And I, you know, went to all these amazing luthiers that are famous and, you know, that you could, we could spend a whole interview just talking about the history of luthiers in right. Spain, the, these famous families that made guitars for generations. And then, you know, the, then the, the cousins go off and open their own shop, you know, and it... Uh, and, and anyway, it, so I ended up, um, it, it was kind of down to a few guitars, uh, but really the Conde Hermanos guitar uh, at that time completely won me over and I, I bought this guitar and I brought it home and, and yeah, it, it's, um, made of rosewood, um, on the back and side. So it's called a Negra cause it's a dark, uh, it's a dark wood guitar and it, just beautiful, beautiful sound. And most of the records I've made, I've made with that guitar. I, I really got lucky. It's a beautiful, beautiful instrument. And since then, Conde Hermanos has split again, and now there's uh, Felipe Cinco Conde, and there's another brother. There, there were already three different Condes uh, at that time. I think, I don't know how many there are now. It, it's really gotten crazy. But um, but other than that, I, um, over the years, I've actually, because after a guitarist named Vicente Amigo came along, uh, just a wonderful, wonderful you know, Spanish guitarist. Uh, he kind of brought back the blonde guitar sound. So those are made uh, with uh, cypress and spruce. So they're um, they're much brighter sounding guitar. And and they when I first started, everybody used those really just for accompanying dance because they're just supposed to be bright and not really concert instruments. Uh, but when Vicente came along people started taking that sound more seriously and making them better and better so they became concert instruments and they have a lovely lovely tone so i now have several different spanish made um they, they're called rubios so blonde guitars and um and yeah it, it's you know it's one of those things where i don't have a, it's not like an electric guitar player where you own whatever 50 guitars or something <laughs> i'm you know i i only own maybe 6 or 7 and i mostly play Two or three, and, uh, and is there a difference between what you play in the studio versus what you tour with? Because I'm sure touring yes. takes a toll on your guitars. Yeah, right? oh yeah, yeah, yeah. no, because all of these Spanish guitars hate Canada. It's brutal. I buy no matter like I'll buy some. Uh, most of them I bought in Spain, but I I bought a few in Los Angeles. There's this amazing guitar store there called the Guitar Salon, uh, where they sh import guitars from Spain, and they have just a crazy assortment. That if you were in Spain, you'd have to travel to different cities to try all these different guitars. You know, whereas the Guitar Salon, you could sit in one room and hear all these guitars back to back. Uh, uh, but even there, you know, I guess the California sun is similar to the Spanish climate. <laughs> so the guitars are totally happy there. And then I bring them home on the plane and they go through one winter and I'm, you know, humidifying like crazy, doing everything I can to keep these guitars happy and they still crack and I have to go and get them, you know, fixed. It's hard. It's, it's hard to watch. It's hard to watch. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. is there a difference between a classical guitar and a flamenco guitar? Yeah, classical is the action is much higher, so the distance between the oh, yeah. strings and and the, the the front face of the guitar is much higher. Uh, it's a warmer, bigger sound. Um, the the thickness of the 
guitar itself, the wood is thicker. Uh, flamenco guitars are much thinner. It's a brighter sound, and it's more of a kind of wild sound. It's like coffee or tobacco. There's a kind of a buzz to it that, you know, just it's that X factor. Um, and I I love that. I you know that's for me that's really what separates the great flamenco guitars from people who imitate that sound. You know that you you know you have a lot of guitars that look like flamencos, but sound like classicals and then you go to Spain and try one of these amazing guitars and you know you're just like oh my god that's that's there's something about it and I can't even just define it it's just amazing and and can you just when you pick up a guitar like that do you know immediately that this is the guitar that you want <laughs> uh pretty quickly uh it's hard too cuz especially in Spain the acoustics are so different because they again you're you if you want to try a Ramirez you go to the Ramirez shop and you're sitting in the shop and all you're playing are their guitars at different levels and then you if you want to now go and hear that Conde you gotta get walk down the street like 10 blocks or something and try it in their shop try the Condes in their shop and the other thing is they're always trying to suss out whether or not they want to give you their better guitars so they'll show you some crappy guitars first really? and then they'll see, yeah they'll judge your reaction they'll judge how well you play and then if they if they like you and think you're okay then they'll like well I have this other guitar and they bring it <laughs> but they're trying to hold back the good ones for the real players right so it's 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 a funny game but um but and the other thing is they're as I said they're in different acoustic environments and it's hard to it's hard to judge them because you know they some of those stores they sound so loud like everything's ceramic right you go in there in spain they love tile everywhere right so yeah, yeah. those guitars in that environment sounds really loud and then you get it to north america where we like you know wall-to-wall carpeting and <laughs> it's not, it doesn't sound the same ever uh and even the the humidity it's funny like i when i uh, i went and lived in in sevilla with my wife um, in, I think, around 2004. We were there for, you know, just part of a year. And my guitar sound, it never sounded as good. It somehow, in its natural habitat, it just opened up. It was like, oh, I'm home, thank God, you know. Uh, it's so what thing. was, did you do that because it it is the home of flamenco music? And was it important for you to live there? It was, yeah, oh my God, it, like what I do, it's funny, I've been using this term flamenco throughout the interview, and I have to be really careful, because I want to be clear, what I do is not flamenco, it's influenced by flamenco for sure, the techniques I'm using are flamenco, the Andalusian cadence is flamenco, all sorts of things about what I do are flamenco, I'm playing a flamenco instrument, Right. but flamenco, it is a a musical tradition with rules and structures and palos and you know uh, rhythmic time signatures and melodic motifs that are built into those forms and we're talking about like solea and segarias and fandango de huelva and bolaria and all these different forms and if you're playing flamenco you're playing those forms whereas you know I, at a very early on I realized I didn't grow up in Spain this isn't really my music I don't you know, I don't feel it's my torch to carry. I would rather follow my own, you know, do something that Spanish people don't do. And I, and I, I do feel that the music I'm doing is kind of very Canadian. It is a kind of a, a multicultural mix, a big stew of the kind of music that, you know, my friends do and I do. And, and, and um, so, you know, to be clear, I, I'm not making flamenco. And it's interesting, like Spanish people are starting to, like there was, a, I think, uh, flamencovivo.com is a big, big flamenco site in Spain, has started to write really positive 
articles about me and, you know, saying how important I am to the future of flamenco. And I'm going, oh, my God, you know, for a long time, people thought I was the death of flamenco, right? Because I'm, wow. I'm not following the traditions. I'm not yeah, playing, yeah. playing these rules. And in fact, um, the guy who runs that site at one point, my, a, friend, a mutual friend sort of put us in touch and we ended up having a, a few conversations. And, and I kept saying, listen, I really appreciate that you say this. This means a world to me, but I, I have to disagree. I don't actually think that what I'm doing is flamenco at all. I think the future of flamenco is and will always be in the hands of Spanish people because that's where this music lives and grows and changes. And so to answer your question, why do we go to Spain? Because it's constantly evolving and changing. And the level of playing there is crazy. Like you you can never, you know, stop learning if you go to Spain. Um, whereas what I'm doing here is really kind of just pursuing my own course, you know, following my own uh, musical muse. So, but when you tour and you tour all over the world, when you play in places like Spain, Mm-hmm. How are you received? I presume you received quite well. Um, to be honest, we haven't played Spain a lot, uh, and I and I I get it. I think it's like uh, if there was a Spanish hockey player, you know, would he get a lot of work in Canada? <laughs> you know? So, uh, but more and more, I mean, it's funny because more and more on social media, Spanish people are interested in what I'm doing, and I think part of it is because. Uh, you know, flamenco, there's, there are uh, people who live and breathe flamenco in Spain, but the majority of people in Spain actually aren't interested in the music. It, it's kind of like the blues here. It's funny, we're on this show, but you know yeah, what I mean? That yeah. There are a lot of people who you say, what do you think of the blues? And they're like, not interested. You know, I listen to, you know, hip hop or trap or right. whatever they listen to. Uh, and for them, the blues is some kind of old fashioned music. And I think a lot of people in Spain feel that way about flamenco. Um, Do you think it's also very touristy? Uh, sadly, yes, flamenco is, you know, kind of trotted out for tourists. And, yeah. and, and the kind of flamenco that is often trotted out for tourists is... It, it, there's a weird feeling about it because you'll you'll see like I've been to these tablaos uh, in in Sevilla for example that are the tourist tablaos and you can just feel that the performers have this kind of disdain for the tourists you know that they're putting on a show that's got to be a bit more zippy and flashy and you know got to get people up on stage and make fun of them dancing and all this stuff that you know is really not part of the flamenco that is like, I mean, flamenco, for people who live and breathe it, it's like a religion. It's a very serious art form for them. And to kind of bring it out and kind of make light of it as this sort of, here's our little tourist show, you know, yeah, sort yeah. of song and, and dog and pony show. I think I feel in Spain that there's a lot of disdain for the for the tourists or that they're doing that to the art or whatever. And it's kind of unfortunate because it, it, it is a beautiful, beautiful art form. And, and you know... it's also become a kind of a symbol for Spain. And so the tourist board uses it and whatever, but you know, again, this, it's not my art form. So I, I, this is, this is the kind of impressions that I've gotten, but, uh, but I also, I'm I'm not, I'm not the best person to talk about that. But I also wonder, um, you know, if, 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 if he didn't do the touristy thing, if a lot of those musicians could actually make a decent living, do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's true. It's, it's hard. Yeah. Uh, they they talk about that all the time, like the because the level of playing is so high in Spain 
Uh, and and yet the interest there, you know, I went to see Vicente Amigo, who is my favorite guitarist on the planet. I went to see him perform in Cordoba. And, you know, it, for me, it was like this pilgrimage. I was in Sevilla. We get on a bus. We go to Cordoba. You know, I get there early. I get my great seats. I'm sitting there. And the place is half full and people are wandering around and talking during his performance. He was actually opening for this singer named Jose Marseille. And, and I remember looking around with just, just come shock, like, oh my God, this is Vicente Amigo and you guys are ignoring him. And it's hard. And, and like, he's, you know, he's probably the most famous guitarist in Spain right now. Uh, but there, you know, it, it's, um, it, he's, they don't always respect the yeah, sort of yeah. amazing art artists they have. Some people do, as I said, there's this kind of, you know, there are people in the, in the Spanish community for whom it's a religion and other people who just don't care. Very much like blues, I guess. I mean, would you say that about blues? Is that something? Is, yeah, I would, mean, I think it's going through a really tough time and I, I, and it's tough because everything is going through a tough time right now, but you know, uh, it's, it's not what it was. And mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the original or the the greats are gone, so now it's become something else, and yeah. and and you know, it's good that it continues, but maybe there's too many of that something else, and I'm not sure if there are a lot of people who are anywhere close to what the originals were. You know, there's a yeah. lot of people who who are good and and are continuing the tradition, but there's a lot more who are not, and I think that they do a disservice to the the music. I think. But the, you know, that's just my opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, it's uh, sorry. Go ahead. Um, so I was going to say, uh, going back to Tempest, which is which basically changed your life. You recently did a remake of that. Yeah. Twenty five yeah, yeah. years later, what was that like? It was fun. It was fun. I, I didn't have to learn anything. <laughs> it was. <laughs> but I already said, knew the song. But you said but you was, wanted to kind of see mm-hmm. where you were at with that song twenty five years later. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it was. It's funny too because we um, we were putting out this twenty fifth anniversary album uh, uh, called Tempest Twenty Five, and um, and I, in order to do it, we wanted to kind of remaster some of those old works. And I I hadn't really gone back and listened to Tempest, the original Tempest, in forever. Like I, you know, we play it live yeah. all the time, but that's very different from actually hearing the original recording. And I was, I have to say, I was a little bit shocked. Uh, a, you know, the original. Uh, the original records, all of my records, I've made at home in my own studio, and I've mixed them and engineered them and produced them. And uh, and the first record, uh, Tempest, you know, that recording sounded bad to me. <laughs> and I was I was kind of shocked at how, you know, it was way more synth driven than I had remembered, and uh, you know, the fidelity of it, the kind of compression, everything about it. I was just like, wow, it doesn't it doesn't breathe the way. You know, I'm used to it breathing because we play it live. It breathes, right? So I thought, what would happen if I sat down and just did it now? And it, you know, it happened very quickly. I didn't, I didn't spend a lot of time on it, and I didn't call any. You know, I, I think um, just I had uh, uh, Marito, uh, a friend of mine who's a great drummer. He added some timbales to it, um, but because of COVID, you know, I was just, just me. At, everything else was me at home, and uh, but I still sort of felt like it represented more the way I hear the song now. Um, and then for the video, um, my daughter, uh, I, I, she, I handed her the camera cause I needed some shots that weren't, you know, with the camera sitting on a tripod and she filmed part of it with me, which was really fun. 
so I got to, you know, sort of make a video with my daughter, which was, yeah, it was enjoyable. She didn't want to be in it. <laughs> she wouldn't even let me put her name on the credits, but uh, she, she, I think she really enjoyed it. She wanted to do more after that. She's like, oh, let's make another video. So that, that's a good sign. Wow. I, I need to wrap this up, but let me ask you one final question. So, so it's been the 25 years since that album came out. How do you summarize the journey you've taken? I mean, it sounds like a pretty amazing journey. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's a... It's, uh, I, I, I've said it before. I, I feel like I, I, I won the lottery. I mean, you know, if you'd asked me, you know, back in 1994, a year before Tempest came out, if I would ever tour west of Islington, you know what I mean, in <laughs> Toronto, like, let alone, you know, go coast to coast all these years, you know, and I know every little town in Canada and then in every little town in the U.S. And then, oh, my God, we played in Cairo. We played in Singapore and China and Japan and uh, Europe. Uh, we played in castles and, you know, just sort of hanging out over the ocean in Beirut. Like, uh it's Dubai, all these places I just never in a million years thought I would go and do concerts and have people following. I mean, I have more followers in Iran uh, right now than I think anywhere else in the in the world. And I, I'll, I'll never even get a chance to play in Iran. And to me, it's it's amazing. I feel like, you know, I, I just recorded this little record these little ditties, these little musical ditties, and and they've sort of gone off into the world and had a way more interesting life than I ever will. Like you know, the one song of mine, "Mario Takes a Walk," was sort of turned into this massive Bollywood hit that, that really? was like, yeah, it, a song called "Doom." I think it's "Doom Doom." I think it's the song, but it was it was like uh, it it was kind of the Mission Impossible of Bollywood <laughs> movies it, it there's there I think they're working on Doom 7 now or something and the main song Doom Doom was my song Mary Takes a Walk you know the, the song that launched this massive uh, sort of film blockbuster was my song Mary Takes a Walk so it's it, it, I, I keep being amazed by the whole thing I'm just I, I'm shocked you know by the the kind of luck I've had and and uh, this incredible journey that and I feel like you know it's it, it's people they take your music and they they embrace what you do and and they it, it's the, an incredible gift that people have given me that you know i get to do this for a living yeah for sure but i mean obviously you have an incredible gift that you give to them so well thank you nice of you to say that well thank you for sharing this time with me i really I, you know I, I told you i saw you play i was amazed i wanted to meet you and talk to you and i am thrilled to have this opportunity thank you well it was a pleasure to be here and thanks thanks for having me thank you.